Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, March 1st. We start a new month. And thanks for joining us as we start that month. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, I, I want to mention just before we began the podcast, your daughter was in the studio and we were uh, trying to get her to get involved. <laughs> yes. So my daughter is four and a half and I guess just absorbs everything. And I guess I'm always saying, oh, I have to go do my podcast or I'm doing my podcast. So now she likes to do podcasts. So we see her, she'll be sitting at a table and she'll be like, I'm doing my podcast. I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> it's so, so cute. Well, uh, so- someday soon, I'm looking forward to handing her at least a speed read. <laughs> We need to get her take on all things related to kids. Yes, yes. I'm looking forward to having um, Alex involved in the podcast <laughs> one day soon. But we were warming her up today. We might have a couple audio clips to share sometime in the near future. But now let's get to some headlines here. The big takeaways after the Supreme Court. Here's arguments on Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. What is happening in the Middle East right now? We're going to break down the latest round of violence. The White House is giving federal agencies 30 days to delete TikTok from all government devices. At the same time, some TikTok users are freaked out over a super realistic beauty filter. The war in Ukraine now in its second year and Americans are kind of tuning it out. The push to take crypto mainstream hits a major roadblock and move over tequila and beer. Saki is having a moment. Sock it to me, Mosh. Love sake, <laughs> especially they, they always ask whether you want it room temperature or chilled. I'm a I'm a chilled guy. How about yourself? I like it warm, actually. Hot oh, sake. Interesting. <laughs> All right. And Moshe, of course, says on this day. We welcome Texas and a few other states on this day in history. OK, let's start with a follow up to a story we told you about yesterday. The Supreme Court on Wednesday heard arguments about President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, which would cancel about four hundred and thirty billion dollars in student debt for about 40 million borrowers. The court has a six to three conservative majority and those conservative justices appeared skeptical about whether Biden's plan is actually legal. So this program would let millions of eligible borrowers cancel up to $20,000 in federal debt. President Biden announced the plan in August, but then in October, a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals issued a temporary hold. So the Supreme Court heard two cases on Wednesday. The first was brought by six Republican-led states. The second case was brought by two student borrowers who were opposed to the plan's eligibility requirements. One of the arguments here is that Biden's plan violates the Constitution because it circumvents Congress which has the power to create laws related to student loan forgiveness. Based on some of the questions that we heard from justices, it looks like they could be deciding the case based on what is called the major questions doctrine. Under that theory, federal agencies cannot initiate sweeping new policies that have a significant economic impact without authorization from Congress. It is the same theory that was used to block Biden's COVID vaccine requirement for big businesses and also block the EPA from limiting carbon emissions from power plants. Conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch also asked about the fairness of canceling student loan debt for some borrowers and not for others. So I want to play this quick soundbite from his questioning. Take a listen. To not just the cost of the government. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. what I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, don't have planned their lives around not seeking loans, um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place. 
and that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. Most, you got to love that we now have audio from the Supreme Court. Yeah, one of the positives coming out of uh, COVID is they began live streaming uh, the cases, and it looks like they're going to keep that in place moving forward. Still no video cameras in the Supreme Court or in any federal court, uh, and that probably won't change for a while, but having live audio is a very nice change of pace, and it does give you a sense of a tone, uh, and so you don't have to just depend on court stenographers and reporters uh, writing down quotes, but you get to listen to them in, in real time. Jill, I want to get back, though, to the major questions doctrine that you brought up. In the questions that many of the conservatives posed, they signaled that they see in the Republican state's case another chance to draw a line here between what the White House can do and what it can't do without Congress. And so the argument here from the Republican states is this is White House overreach. To do this sort of thing like loan forgiveness, you need to get Congress involved. The major questions doctrine here implies that Congress has to be specific about what powers they give executive agencies. So you mentioned the EPA case. You know, the court felt that Congress wasn't specific in how much power they gave the EPA in terms of managing uh, issues related to emissions. In this case, they don't believe that Congress was specific enough in the 2003 law that they passed that the Biden administration is basically clinging to here to make their case. This 2003 law, we mentioned it on the podcast yesterday, is called the HEROES Act. It was passed for Iraq war veterans and said that the government can provide relief to recipients of student loans when there's a national emergency. Now, they weren't specific about a pandemic or about how unmasked and how large this would be. And that's the argument Republicans are making is like, well, that was never the intention of this law in 2003. And what you heard yesterday from the Supreme Court justices, at least the conservatives, were questions as to, yeah, what was the intention of Congress here? Were they specific enough? Or is this White House overreach? Do they need to go to Congress to get specific permission to give this sort of, uh, you know, writ large, $500 billion, 40 million people, etc. The other thing that came up, and we mentioned this on the podcast yesterday, was standing, as in these two groups that went before the Supreme Court, the six Republican states, and then the two uh, non-loan recipients who are upset they weren't eligible. Did they have proper standing? Did they have a case to be made that they have been hurt by this law? And what's interesting here, Jill, is this is where you saw a conservative and liberal get together. Amy Coney Barrett, conservative. Elena Kagan, liberal. Both question repeatedly on the standing these people have, which means, and if you're like kind of a, a court watcher here, Amy Coney Barrett was giving indications that she might um, uphold this on the grounds that these people didn't have standing. So what does that mean? Well, it takes a 6-3 conservative majority to 5-4. So maybe the liberals and Red Rover, Red Rover, have Amy come over, have been successful here. The question is, though, will the liberals have a fifth vote to send it up? And, And that we won't know the answer to till the last week of June when they release their decision. Mosh, we should mention that there is a lot riding on this. At least 26 million applications for the student loan forgiveness have already been filed. So a lot of those people in limbo right now. Um, And there were a few hundred people outside of the court today, mostly in favor of Biden's plan. Yeah. And we should mention of those 26 million, 16 million have been approved. People have gotten approval notifications being like, we're ready to uh, clear $20,000 or up to $20,000 of your debt. So this is significant, you know, for 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 some people here, this is a, a major decision they're waiting on that could really change uh, what they are able to do with their money this year. OK, now to the escalating situation in the West Bank amid increased violence between Israelis and Palestinians. 
all Israeli suspects detained after riots Sunday night in the Palestinian West Bank town of Huwara have been released. The head of the Israeli military, meanwhile, vowing to investigate the lawlessness. So here's what happened three nights ago, out for revenge for the murder of two Israeli citizens. About 400 Israeli settlers entered Hawara through stones at houses and set homes and cars on fire. 36 homes were burned. Most of the families living there had to be evacuated. Hundreds of cars, olive trees, livestock were torched. The Palestinian Health Ministry said a 37-year-old man was shot and killed during the riots. This most recent round of violence was set off Sunday when a Palestinian gunman shot and killed two Israeli brothers, Halel and Yagel Yaniv, ages 21 and 19. They were residents of a nearby Israeli settlement. They were killed as they drove through that West Bank Palestinian town, Hawara. Townspeople then responded with riots. It was one of the most intense episodes of settler-led violence in memory. And it came as Israeli and Palestinian leaders and their regional neighbors were meeting in Jordan to try to calm the crisis. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu condemned the vigilantism, but his words seemed to be ignored by the Israeli settlers. And then on Monday, there was another killing. This time, though, Israeli officials say Palestinians carried out several drive-by shootings on a highway near Jericho. They killed one person, Ilan Ganellis. He is a 27-year-old American citizen from West Hartford, Connecticut, who was visiting Israel for a friend's wedding. Let's zoom out here for a minute and just look at the bigger picture. If you're looking at a map of Israel and the Palestinian territories, the West Bank, named after the West Bank of the Jordan River, is uh, technically on the eastern side of the country. If you look at the map, it's kind of kidney bean shaped. Uh, Nearly 700,000 Israeli settlers live there. It's also home to 3 million, nearly 3 million Palestinians. Palestinians view uh, the West Bank as uh, their home and as land they see as part of a future state. At the same time, the West Bank has holy sites that are important to Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Uh, Many Jews in Israel call it Judea and Samaria, the biblical lands that are talked about in the Bible. Palestinians see it as part of a modern future Palestine. This area was controlled by Jordan, the country Jordan, just across the river there, the Jordan River, until 1967, when the Israelis captured it in the Six-Day War. And then over the course of the past 50 years, 50-plus years now, it's been the subject for negotiation. Many in the international community, including the Biden administration, have told the Israelis that they should stop building additional towns in that territory because it will eventually uh, be home to a future Palestinian state. And the more Israeli settlements, settlements we refer to that are built there, they view it as making even more complicated to create a a two-state solution, a Palestine living alongside Israel. So this has been the subject, this territory, along with the Gaza Strip, have been the subject of negotiations going back 30 years now about how to divide it. The Israelis have made multiple offers. The Palestinians have rejected those splits of the land. Incidentally, I should say the Palestinian Authority head, Abbas, who currently leads uh, Palestinians in that part in the West Bank, has said he regretted rejecting the last decision, the last split in retrospect. No matter what, though, the split has not been successful and tensions escalate. Frustrations have escalated over time as more Israelis live there. Uh, and Israelis see that as just part of a permanent Israel, and Palestinians see sort of the dwindling prospects of having an independent state there. The most recent violence, we should say, Jill, and you know, obviously, unfortunately, we talk about this region and violence uh, relatively often, comes as these frustrations have reached a boiling point, and there's a lot of young Palestinians who live in the West Bank 
who no longer see the Palestinian Authority, which is the governmental entity that uh, manages uh, the towns that many of them live on, uh, as pursuing policies that they want. The young people feel the Palestinian Authority has not been strong enough with Israel, so they're turning some of them to more extremist groups like the Hamas terrorist group, Islamic Jihad, and some of the groups that uh, are threatening more violent attacks against Israelis and acting upon them. And so the Palestinian Authority is sort of ignoring these groups, letting them sort of persist as to not upset the young people. And so the Israelis feel like they have to go in there and uh, arrest members of these groups to prevent future attacks. And so what you end up having here are these altercations. In this case now, we see uh, a situation where Palestinian civilians are killing Israeli civilians, almost more than a dozen Israelis killed just in 2023 alone in these types of incidents. And so you saw settlers here take things into their own hands. And that is what is particularly concerning to Israelis and Palestinians and frankly, all international observers is this sort of civilian on civilian violence. And I do want to mention that we know that this topic is just extremely, extremely controversial. And and it's one of those things where no matter what we say, we know that one side is going to yes. think it's we're we're against one. Have you, have you been in my direct messages on Instagram? Chill? No, I mean, like I, I've admitting. been there. I mean, I used to and you and I have talked about this. And I when I used to write need to know um, my old daily newsletter, no matter how I wrote a story about the Middle East and Israel and, and what was going on, I would hear it from both sides. Well, you didn't mention this. You didn't mention that. And I get it because it's it's a history yeah. that goes back thousands of years. And so it's like, where do you even start, right? Um, and I know you hear this too. And I just kind of want to say it because we realize that we're not doing justice to this story. We couldn't. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about where should we start, like one of the uh, incidents happened nearby Joseph's tomb, like literally Joseph from the Bible, that Joseph, his tomb is near Nablus, the West Bank town of Nablus. So there's a, a group of Jews that live near it. They view it as a, a important biblical site. And so when we talk about this, you know, we began this read on what took place over the weekend. But right. That's in the year 2023. We could begin, we talked about how, you know, Jordan controlled that territory to 1967. Well, they had it from 48 to 67. Before that, the British had it. And before that, the Ottoman Turks had it. And before that, the Assyrians had it. And, and then you had like the Marmaluk e Egyptians. Anyway, I could go back and it's been controlled by, you know, 50 so on groups. And Jews will, you know, mention in Israel that there was the Kingdom of Israel 3,000 years ago um, over this territory. And Palestinians have their case to be made as far as their history that goes back hundreds and hundreds, if not, you know, if, if, if not more than that. And obviously, there's certain sites there that are important to, Islamic history in terms of, uh, you know, that uh, that has a connection to Muhammad and various Muslim sages over time. And so that's the issue you're dealing with, with a, a piece of territory. When we're talking about the West Bank, the size of Delaware, okay, the entire state of Israel, and you combine those territories as New Jersey, you have thousands of years of history. And so we'll do our best to keep you up to date. But, you know, we could report on this probably on a daily basis, Jill, but I think this most recent round of violence, particularly the civilian and civilian violence, um, is drawing extra attention. And it's one of the reasons we wanted to bring it to everyone's attention today. All right, before we get to the speed read, I want to thank a couple of our sponsors this week. And let's start with Blinkist. It's a professional book and podcast summary service I've been using for nearly a year now. Blinkist is a quick way to get summaries of books that you want to read but can't get around to, or just if you need a quick refresher if you haven't read the book in a while. 
Blinkist is essentially audio cliff notes. It gives you a summary of a book in about 15 minutes. I like to listen to them on my commutes or while working out. It now has more than 5,500 books and podcast summaries available, a range of topics, politics, parenting, communication, leadership, investing. Blinkist also provides curated collections, expert-led guides. It really lets you grow a little more every day. You know, oftentimes you might see those leadership books, you know, 10 ways to get smart on this or 15 ways to improve on that. And if you're not able to read the full books, I like to turn to Blinkist for a quick summary of those books. Right now, through this Tuesday, so you have about a day here, they have a special offer for the Mo News audience. Head over to Blinkist.com slash Mo News. They're offering a seven-day free trial and you get 40% off a Blinkist premium membership. You can head over to Blinkist.com slash Mo News. That is Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, like in a blink, Blinkist, Blinkist.com slash Mo News to get 40% off and a seven-day free trial. Again, the offer is good through Tuesday. And they also have this. For a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account, which means you will get two premium subscriptions for the price of one. So definitely go check that out over at Blinkist.com slash Monews. All right, let's talk about another incredibly helpful sponsor this week. I want to introduce all of you to Apostrophe. It's an online platform that connects you with expert dermatologists that allow you to get customized treatment for your unique skin. Apostrophe is very convenient. It offers virtual dermatology consultations, uh, everything from acne to dark spots. Sometimes getting a dermatology appointment, as you know, can take a while. I know I have found that. So what Apostrophe is offering here is something that is simple to use and can be done from home. If you head over to apostrophe.com slash monews, you can get started today. You answer several questions, snap a few selfies, and they will connect you with a board-certified dermatologist that will create an initial customized treatment plan. And they're offering a special deal for the Monews audience right now. You can get your first visit for only $5 over at apostrophe.com slash monews. You'll also have an opportunity to get a discount on medication with the Monews code. Again, to get started, apostrophe.com slash monews. Click get started and you'll get your first visit for only $5. All right, time now for the speed read. Let's talk TikTok from USA Today. Once portrayed as nothing more than a dance app for kids, TikTok is under renewed federal scrutiny over its possible implications for national security. The White House on Monday moved to ban the popular Chinese-owned social media platform from all government-issued devices, giving federal agencies 30 days to delete the app. The guidance has exceptions for law enforcement activities, national security interests and activities, and security research Meanwhile, House Republicans are moving forward with a bill that would give President Biden the power to enact nationwide bans on TikTok and other software applications that are threatening to national security. Representative Mike McCall said anyone with TikTok downloaded on their device has given the Chinese Communist Party a backdoor to all of their personal information. It is a spy balloon into their phone. Meanwhile, the ACLU says it opposes the congressional ban on TikTok. And also this week, Canada announcing a ban on TikTok from government-issued devices, also saying it presents an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security. Jill, I was waiting for you to say the TikTok on the clock, but the party don't stop. TikTok. Literally. <laughs> a little catcher <laughs> reference. So it appears TikTok is literally on the, on the clock here for all federal employees. Some people were questioning earlier today, Jill, why federal employees are downloading TikTok to their work phones. But I mean, have you tried TikTok? How do you not have it on every phone available to you? Either way, it's going to be banned from federal phones. The Canadians are getting in on the act. The Europeans are getting in on that. There's a lot of businesses 
uh, people who are messaging me on um, Instagram uh, who tell me that you know their businesses already banned TikTok on their personal phones due to all of this. This legislation will be interesting to see um, whether it passes. It certainly gives Biden a lot of power here. The Chinese were mocking the U.S. Uh, in a press conference on Tuesday, saying that, quote, how unsure of itself can the U.S., the world's top superpower, be to fear a young person's favorite app to such a degree? Basically being like, you guys are being ridiculous over there with this TikTok talk. While we're talking TikTok here on a completely different wavelength, we should mention the story from Vice that you and I were talking about. A new ultra-realistic TikTok beauty filter is coming under fire for being too good. Apparently, this filter, I don't know how many of you out there have used it, uh, convincingly alters facial features to look more conventionally attractive and simulates a soft glam makeup <laughs> look. It has some users. For- I love that you're reading this. Jill, I'm just reading off the script here. What is a soft glam makeup look? Is Right now, am I looking at soft glam? Is that me right now? <laughs> it's definitely not what I look like right now with zero makeup on yeah. and my hair in a bun. I guess it would be like a Kardashian with good lighting. Got it. So effectively allowing everyone to look like a Kardashian on their filter every day. I See, I'm familiar with these filters. I know this filter discussion has been going on for a while, but apparently this effect is called the bold glamour effect. It's been used millions of times, and people are actually shocked that this one actually looks totally real. Like, you can't tell that's an effect. Have you played with it yet? I'm not on TikTok, so no. (laughs) Apparently, serious concern here, though, Jill, is that especially among people who might have an eating disorder or history with that or body dysmorphia, that uh, it's it's continuing to create these unrealistic beauty standards with these new filters. Um, and so that's separate from the whole discussion about banning TikTok, privacy, uh, our data going to the Chinese government. Nevertheless, TikTok remains under fire and something we're going to be looking ahead to this month. In just a couple of weeks, the TikTok CEO will be having a high stakes hearing uh, on Capitol Hill. From Axios, Americans grow numb as war in Ukraine drags on past the one-year mark. One year in, attention to stories around the war in Ukraine has mostly flatlined in the U.S., suggesting Americans are no longer gripped by the storylines that shocked them at the war's outset last February. Interest in the war spiked last March when it became clear that Russia's offensive would have a major impact on geopolitics and the global economy. At the beginning of April, we learned about all the mass graves. There were bodies of civilians in the streets that were found after the Russian forces retreated. So that's when there was a lot of attention and a lot of interest from the U.S. audience. But since then, major shifts in the war caused minor surges in U.S. traffic to news stories. On TV, networks have remained committed to covering the war, but they've run into viewer fatigue. And on social media, interactions with stories about the war plummeted after September and have remained relatively low, with the exception of a small spike in the past week around this one-year anniversary. Moshe, I'm curious what you have seen on Instagram in terms of engagement. Among the Mo News audience, and obviously that's sort of a niche audience um, on Instagram, you know, I have seen some similar trends in terms of, you know, I track shares on stories. And so I have seen less sharing of the Ukraine coverage, though, at the same time, Jill, I did get multiple people over the weekend, as I was sharing stuff for the one year anniversary of the war, who were interested, who were engaged. I think the particular interest right now, among a lot of Americans is how much aid are we giving to Ukraine? Why is this still important? So you do see that sort of waning interest or, or certainly ask more questions about the war, how long will this last? 
and why should we continue to care about it? And so you did see that from Biden with that trip last week, trying to um, re-engage the American audience and reinforce that this is important. But I, we are seeing similar trends there. You know, I was struck by that Axios story. Jill, they put a chart together and you do see this massive increase in the number of articles Americans were reading at the beginning of the war, nearly 500 million in that first month. And now you're averaging about, you know, 20, 20 million. You're, you know, you're basically going to 5% of initial interest at the peak of the war. And this is always a challenging thing. And people were asking me about, you know, national media publications. Well, they're not covering it as much. I was like, no, they're covering it. They're doing it online. It's just not on the front page every day because you're not clicking on it. And some of these websites are algorithmic, right? They are boosting the stories to the top that they think you will click on and will uh, keep you on the website. Some uh, websites are still controlled by people, not algorithmic. Either way, though, this is sort of Ukraine's biggest fear that they need the West and the allies to continue to stay engaged here on the war. And if you see a lessening interest among at least the American population here, that starts to lead to concerns that, you know, at some point, less interest means less engagement means what are we still doing there means, hey, Congress, stop giving them money and weapons. And so um, it'll be interesting to see here um, to what extent, if at all, Americans become reengaged on the subject or just kind of over it and ready to move on. And one other quick news item to mention related to Ukraine, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made a previously unannounced visit to Kiev this week. She is expected to announce the transfer of $1.25 billion in economic and budget assistance. As you mentioned, continued U.S. economic support has become a divisive political issue. Yeah, it was interesting, Jill, over the weekend, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, made a point of talking about how important aid to Ukraine is. You know, continue to make the argument that if the U.S. doesn't stop Putin in Ukraine, Putin will roll through Europe. And that's the argument Eastern Europe will make. Uh, you, you do have this sort of a growing um, volume in certain parts of the Republican Party of, hey, what are we still doing there? We have problems here at home. A sort of isolationist stance when it comes to Ukraine. But so far, it appears the vast majority of Democrats and the vast majority of Republicans in leadership positions continue to want to support the war. From CNN, U.S. home prices fell for the sixth month in a row in December as rising mortgage rates pushed prospective buyers out of the housing market. This is according to the latest S&P CoreLogic Case Shiller U.S. National Home Price Index. Whoa, Mosh, what a mouthful. <laughs> I was going to say, it, people just refer to it as Case Shiller. I didn't realize it became the S&P CoreLogic. <laughs> this is like a sports team. Uh, the national composite declined by just under 1% in December. Prices now stand 4.4% below its June peak. All cities in the 20-city index, which includes New York, Minneapolis, Phoenix, LA, reported declines before and after seasonal adjustments with a median decline of 1.1%. So there you have it, folks. Houses were at peak prices in June. They're down just 4%, six straight months. You see the headline, you're like, oh, this is great news. But let's zoom out, as we like to do on this podcast. Over the last three years, home prices are still up 40% over this time in 2019, early 2020. So that's just the last three years, up 40%. So down 4% from peak, 40% overall in the last three years. Jill, I just checked on Tuesday, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage stands at 7%. Obviously, one of the big things that is uh, right now dissuading folks from going out there uh, and either selling a home that they have a rich, really low rate on and taking on a new rate on a new home or first time buyers, you know, thinking like, oh, I got to go take a 7% rate. So we'll see what happens with the mortgage market this year. But so far, it appears that uh, there are a bunch of people sitting things out. 
I'm going to give you a little um, anecdata, which is something that your friend had mentioned when we were in D.C., that word anecdata. I loved it, like an anecdote that we're <laughs> passing as data. Uh, <laughs> right, right. right. My, though, though I should note, my friend said it with, like, with a really negative connotation. Like, I hate dealing with anecdata. Like, my two-year-old once did this, <laughs> so that must mean why. I wouldn't say I'm using it positively or negatively. I think this is just neutral. I just love the term because okay. I just thought it was so funny. But I do think it depends on where you are because the issue with homes is that there just really is not enough supply. Um, and so especially, I think, on the lower end of the market. Um, and my parents were, were telling me that a house on their block is for sale. There was an open house this past weekend. And they said you couldn't even get down the block. That's how many cars were, were waiting and how many people wanted to look at the house. And so this is Long Island, New York, just for context. So at least in that neighborhood in New York State. Correct. A little anecdata for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, just, I thought it was important to be precise with the anecdata that we're talking <laughs> about a certain suburb uh, on on Long Island. Uh, but yeah, I mean, regionally, there's certainly uh, a number of trends. I was looking at a rental price as we did a couple posts on that on the Instagram account. And there are certain markets where you've seen, you know, Austin, some of these boom towns have seen uh, rental prices really come down. But then you have certain places like Miami, where because demand remains so high, that uh, rental prices keep going up. Okay, from the AP, we learned Tuesday that disgraced Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes had her second child recently. She is citing that baby as another reason that she should be allowed to delay the start of a more than 11-year prison sentence. Her lawyers are currently appealing her conviction for duping investors about the capabilities of her failed company's blood testing technology. The birth of Holmes' second child was confirmed in court documents filed last week in advance of a March 17th hearing about her bid to remain free during an appeals process that could take years to complete. Yeah, so Elizabeth would like to be home with the baby. Babies, she's actually had two children in two years. Uh, some people very cynically believe this is uh, having the baby is her attempt to stay out of jail here. Now, keep in mind, there are a lot of women uh, out there who commit crimes and have babies in jail or mothers who serve prison time while their kids are at home. This filing did not disclose the date of birth or this child's gender, but this news is not a surprise. She was pregnant uh, at the time of her sentencing back in November when the jury convicted her of four felony counts for fraud and conspiracy. Right now, her prison sentence is set to start on April 27th. But again, her lawyers are like, no, 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 totally let her stay at home while we deal with this appeals process for the next couple of years. Uh, we will see how the judge feels about this in the coming weeks. From Reuters Business, Visa and MasterCard are pausing their crypto push in the wake of the industry meltdown. So sources tell Reuters that these U.S. payment giants, Visa and MasterCard, are slamming the brakes on plans to forge new partnerships with crypto firms after a string of high-profile collapses that shook faith in the industry. The crypto industry saw a stunning reversal of fortunes in 2022 as bankruptcies of FTX and BlockFi rattled investors and increased regulatory scrutiny on the sector. So a spokesperson for Visa says recent high profile failures in the crypto sector are an important reminder that we have a long way to go before crypto becomes a part of mainstream payments and financial services. A spokesperson for MasterCard says our efforts continue to focus on the underlying blockchain technology and how that could be applied to help address current pain points and build more efficient systems. I do think it's fascinating here, Mosh, because you had all of these really big players 
who were hesitant originally to get into crypto, who are finally kind of dipping their toes and having all these partnerships that are now saying uh, not so fast. Jill, they dipped their toes in. They found that the water was warm and then it was really cold. And they're like, we're not. <laughs> I'm out. We're not going let's to. Con- <laughs> let's continue the metaphor. We're not going to dive in at this point. We're going to wait for the water to get warm again. Uh, but it is significant because, you know, there was this mass adoption. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing about someone's, someone's NFT strategy or crypto strategy. Over the last couple of years, a number of major card firms uh, were thinking about getting in, started to announce these various partnerships. Uh, American Express in 2021 said it would consider using crypto as a possible option to redeem reward points in the future. And so for now, though, dealing with the fallout of last year, as we enter this, I think we're living in a crypto winter is one of the metaphors thrown out there. We don't know how long winter is going to be or how cold it's going to be, but right now it's pretty chilly. And a lot of them are waiting to see what the legitimate crypto companies are with actual purposes are. And we'll know that it might be a matter of months, but it also might be a matter of years. Okay, from the New York Times and my favorite story, I think, in today's podcast, Saki is booming in America. Imports are way up. Retail shops are proliferating and more Saki breweries are opening from Brooklyn to Arkansas. For years, sake proponents have proclaimed that it would be the next big thing in the American alcoholic beverage market, but it never took off, even as other categories like tequila and natural wines grew from niche markets to the mainstream. Now, though, evidence of a leap seems to be all over. So look at some of these numbers. Exports from Japan more than doubled in volume from 2012 to 2022, from roughly 14 million liters per year to nearly 36 million liters Exports to the United States in that period grew to more than 9 million liters per year from just under 4 million liters. And paradoxically, as the popularity of sake rises elsewhere, it's declining in Japan. And that's because the population is aging, people are drinking less in general, and younger people have yet to take up sake. Still, sales of premium sake are stable. It's apparently the cheaper stuff that fewer people are buying. You know, what's interesting, Jill, is this is not just a New York thing. It was fascinating to learn in the story that there's a 24,000 square foot brewery for sake opening up in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Apparently, it will be the largest U.S.-owned brewery when it opens in May with a capacity of 1 million liters a year. And if Arkansas seems like a weird place to put a sake uh, brewery, well, Arkansas leads the U.S. in rice production, 40% of U.S. rice is produced in Arkansas. So that is the most interesting fact that I learned today. So while sake comes in a number of styles, the basic ingredients are rice, water, yeast, and koji, which is a rice mold also used for making miso and soy sauce that breaks down the rice starches into fermentable sugars. I'm learning a lot today uh, with our podcast. Um, Jill, we mentioned at the top of the podcast, you are a hot sake person and I am a cold sake person. (laughs) How do we get along, Mosh? It's amazing we can even do this (laughs) podcast together. Not surprisingly, though, just back to sake, a lot of these sake breweries and these specialty stores are where you're located, Brooklyn. Yeah, based on this story, I am not nearly drinking enough sake (laughs) given how close I am to all of it, Jill. Um, One of it, though, is in Greenpoint. And if you know uh, Brooklyn geography well, Greenpoint's kind of a pain to get to from uh, the rest of Brooklyn, but I I will make a trip there based on some of the anecdotes in this New York Times story, which we will link to in the show notes for you. All right, that brings us to On This Day in History. Let's start old school. On this day in 1845, President John Tyler signed legislation officially annexing the Republic of Texas. At the time, Texans will know this. 
Texas was an independent country. Texas was its own country for almost 10 years after winning independence from Mexico back in 1836. And at the time, Texas was like, hey, let's join the U.S. So the minister of the country of Texas, the nation of Texas, proposed annexation back in 1837. It was initially rejected by the U.S. government. They were fearing reprisal from Mexico, also worried about adding another slave state at the time. They were trying to keep equal the number of free states and slave states. And then Texas comes back in 1843 and says, hey, we want to join the U.S. At that time, the British were getting involved, saying we have our own trade relationship with the country of Texas. We don't want them joining the U.S. And so there were multiple attempts. Finally, John Tyler, as president, gets the annexation through in 1845. And by the end of 1845, Texas would officially become a state. But still to this day, Jill, the Texans like their autonomy from their time as their own country. Jill, while we talk about that, we should also mention on this day in history, Ohio and Nebraska also joined the Union on March 1st in different years. Now to the 20th century, key moment in history, the son of American aviator Charles Lindbergh was abducted from his home. The 20-month-old was abducted on March 1st, 1932. Unfortunately, the child was found dead just about two months later. They ended up capturing and putting on trial a German immigrant named Bruno Hotman who was convicted of the baby's kidnapping and murder in what was dubbed at the time the trial of the century, was very closely watched um, as Lindbergh at the time was basically the American celebrity. Kind of think about like the Kardashians, meet George Clooney, meet everybody. Everyone knew Charles Lindbergh and this story and watched the trial. And finally, on this day in 1995, Yahoo, say it, Jill. Yahoo! <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Yahoo.com uh, was incorporated on this day in 1995. I should note, fun fact, Yahoo was originally called Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web. That was the what? first name for it. <laughs> yes. I'm blowing your mind this week with fun 90s facts. Um, it was renamed Yahoo! Exclamation point. They make a point of keeping that exclamation point. Uh, later, uh, for ease, they believe. So they created the Yahoo.com domain name because it turned out that Jerry and David's guide to the World Wide Web was a little long. By the way, Yahoo didn't know this. Yahoo stands for the following. Yet another hierarchically organized oracle. Yahoo. Again, what? <laughs> There's a lot of crazy stuff in the early internet years, Jill, which by the way, we should note, and we talk about this often on the pod, was the last time Congress really wrote laws for the internet back in the days of Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web. So it might be time for Congress to take a look at the laws governing the internet, at least according to many folks these days. A couple of celebrity birthdays we're celebrating today. Harry Belafonte, the actor and activist, turns 96 years old today. Happy birthday, Harry. Next up, Mark Paul Gosseler. Many of you may know him as Zach Morris, turns 49 today. Feeling old, millennials? What has he been up to these days? So I'm I'm pulling up uh, the source here, Wikipedia, Jill. Uh, it appears he has appeared on a few different series, Franklin and Bash, if you ever watched that, uh, various TV series called Pitch and The Passage, respectively. But it appears Mark Paul Gosler uh, peaked as Zach Morris, Jill, back in back in the 90s. I peaked in the 90s, too. So it is it is what it is. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, she, she feels you, Mark. She feels you. A <laughs> couple other birthdays. Lupita Nyong'o is 40. Kesha. Don't stop. <laughs> it's a Kesha-themed episode. She turns 36 today. And the Biebs, Justin Bieber, turns 29 today. Joe's oh, still not even 30 years cringe. old. Cringe. Can he be in his 30s? It's it's annoying. He's a year away. Next year on this podcast, <laughs> I feel like we'll I sound like an old lady. Justin's 30th birthday. You're like, come on, Justin. You can't be that young still, 29. How much have you accomplished in your teens and 20s? 
As we stay with music here on this day in 1967, 56 years ago, the Beatles recorded a little song called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. They apparently had spent eight hours of the previous day recording it, but none of them were satisfied with it. So they came back on March 1st, finally recording an edition of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds that they were happy. Fun little Beatles history for you today, staying with other uh, classic bands. Pink Floyd released their eighth studio album. You might know it as Dark Side of the Moon, 50 years ago today, March 1st, 1973. And finally, 29 years ago today, 1994, Nirvana performed for the final time as a band in Munich, Germany. We would lose Kurt Cobain uh, the following month. Incredible to think that um, Kurt Cobain was only 27 when he died. Yeah, unfortunately, we've, we've lost some we've lost some musical greats way too young. All right, this is just getting depressing. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I usually try to end this podcast on a positive note. I didn't realize as I was stacking the uh, podcast, I was like, ooh, we ended on Nirvana there. Not great. Um, sorry, guys. All right. But a, a big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Appreciate all those reviews. They do make a big difference if you take a moment on Apple or Spotify, especially to review us. That would be appreciated. Also, don't forget to follow us beyond the podcast over on Instagram at Mosh, at M-O-S-H-E-H. All right. Bye, everyone. Later. You're listening to the Bone News Podcast. <laughs>